If you have your Bibles, we're gonna, we're gonna jump into Luke 19, one through 10, and we're just gonna walk verse by verse uh, through this, and then the implications for what this means, this encounter with Zacchaeus, what this will mean for us. So if you have your phones, we'd love for you to turn to that app, uh, or uh, your Bibles, let's follow along. Let's start off in verses one and two. Jesus enters uh, Jericho, and as he was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. So just a little bit of history background. When the, when the Romans who had conquered um, this area, when they would conquer a city, what they would do is to get their finances back of conquering that city and then to make a profit off of that to, to further the, uh, the Roman Empire. What they would do is they would find a local person in that area who knew the people, who knew the streets, who knew all those things, and they would actually say, hey, we want you to work for us. We're gonna give you soldiers and we want you to collect this amount of tax. And so go into the city that you know, the people that you know, and take that tax. Now here's the deal we're gonna make with you that will make it worth your while. Here's, what, here's the amount that we have that needs to be collected. Anything above that amount, you get to keep. So Zacchaeus was a collaborator with the Romans, so not favored in his town. He had turned against his own people to make a profit. But Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. What does it say he was? He was the chief. He was the chief tax collector. So we have to have this in our framework of just picture this man and a weekly or daily thing going out and collecting taxes from the people that he once was just living right alongside. And now he's collaborating with the Romans. So that's our context for who Zacchaeus is. Let's look at verses three and four. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Now, if you grew up in church, the song that you have going through your mind right now, let's just all get it out. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. Okay, not important to our story today, <laughs> but I know that's what you're thinking. So I love how everyone just focuses on that with Zacchaeus. There's like so much more there, but like that's what we, that's what we highlight. So here's the deal. So although he's wealthy, I want you to think about the scene here. It's, it's, it's easy for us, isn't it easy for us just to read uh, the Bible but not picture the Bible? I want you to actually picture the Bible this morning. If you need to close your eyes, go ahead and close your eyes. But think about Zacchaeus. Jesus is coming down the road and Zacchaeus needs to see Jesus but there's obstacles in his way. So what does Zacchaeus do? He runs up and climbs a tree. Think about that image in his mind. Zacchaeus was desperate to see who Jesus was and what Jesus was all about. But why? It says in our text that Zacchaeus was rich. He had everything that money could buy. There's something that we can pick up in this text that shows that there's something below the surface of Zacchaeus in his heart that he's seeking something that money and his wealth cannot obtain. There's something happening in Zacchaeus where what he thought was going to be life, turning on his own people, collecting taxes, going above, is not producing what he thought it would. And Jesus is coming into town and he is so desperate 
to find out what this Jesus, who this Jesus is and what he offers, that he climbs a tree. There's a level of I don't care that's going on with Zacchaeus. I want you to sense the desperation that's happening in Zacchaeus in order to do this, to encounter Jesus. And I just wanna pray this morning that whatever the obstacles that you have of seeing Jesus clearly would melt away. That you would be so desperate in your story to see who the true Jesus is, like Zacchaeus. Verse five, Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. I love how Jesus meets Zacchaeus', Zacchaeus immediacy with climbing the tree and rushing and desperately running up there with, I must hurry up, come down. Do you see that? He's matching Zacchaeus' desperation by saying, I must uh, be at your house today. The other thing I want you to notice here is Jesus didn't say to Zacchaeus, hey Zacchaeus, why don't you clean up your life, stop doing what you're doing, and then I'll go to your house. Jesus invites himself to his house, which is a strange thing we'll get to in a minute. But Jesus invites himself to dine with Zacchaeus exactly with where Zacchaeus is in life. The thing that Jesus recognizes, he doesn't see the exterior things of what's going on in Zacchaeus' life. What he sees is a heart that is desperate to know who he is. And so he matches that immediacy and that desperation by saying, I must. Jesus often dined with the outcasts in the open public centers. And the thing about um, this text that hit me this week was how often I will be so quick to just judge based on the exterior of someone's life how easy it is for me just to be critical of someone. How easy it is for me to already put them in a category within the first couple minutes. And the question I think for us as those who follow Jesus is, are we meeting with these type of people? Do we? Will we? Because the thing that we're seeing uh, in our own lives, if we just look at our own lives, the thing, there's so many of us that buy the lie that if I only had this, then that would give true life. If I only had this person's approval, then everything would be all right with me. If I only could control these circumstances and know the outcomes, then everything would be all right. If I only had this power or this influence or this amount of money or this security, then things would be right. But the thing that is true in our own lives, if we're looking honestly at ourselves, is those things do not produce life. They're bankrupt. We get those things, and then what do we realize? Oh, they don't last. If I'm chasing after someone's approval, what's the problem with chasing after someone's approval? As soon as I get it, what do I need to do? Maintain it. So now I have to work doubly hard to keep that going. So the thing that convicted me this, this week as I was preparing for this was Jesus saw through the exterior of what was going on in Zacchaeus' life and he saw his heart. And so behind what Zacchaeus was doing as a problem with his behavior, he saw a heart that was so hurt and desperate for life that it was seeking in these different behaviors. 
would we be the people that would be reminded because of our own lives, our own hearts, that we would be reminded that there are people around us that are seeking life, they're just looking for it in the wrong places. And that we have an opportunity to point them to true life, which is in Jesus. Verse six, so he hurried and he came down and received him joyfully. This is just a side note of received him joyfully. If you wanna just do a little study this week, Look at the theme of joy and celebration throughout the, uh, the gospel of Luke. There is a, there's a passage in Luke 15 where it talks about the things of great value. When they're found, there's communal celebration and great joy that happens. This, is, this happens over and over again. And it, it's foreshadowing what's gonna happen with Zacchaeus, that those who are received or welcome home, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, when they return home, there is great celebration and great joy that happens. And so it's giving a foreshadow of what's gonna happen with Zacchaeus. Let's look at verse seven. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So let's pause right there. So if we're at home and, and we're reading our Bible, one of the things I just wanna just give you just a little tip, ask questions. Who are the they? in this passage. Like you have to just ask that question. Don't assume you know the answer, but who are the they? So it's easy for us sometimes to just read passages in isolation, but we have to read in context. What came before and what came after the story? So when we're looking at this, we have to look at what came before. So if we just put our, a, a finger there and just turn the page back in chapter 18, you're gonna see that Jesus was actually traveling and on his way to Jericho, as he's traveling, there's religious leaders, there's teachers of the law and the Pharisees that are traveling with him and he's having dialogue with him the whole time. And so as we can assume that these people are still in the crowd when they come into Jericho and with Zacchaeus. So we can just kind of make, make an assumption there that they're still there. And the reason why we can do that is because they grumbled. They were in opposition of what Jesus was doing. So in chapter 18, Jesus is gonna tell this parable about two men that's gonna lay the foundation for this story with Zacchaeus in some really powerful ways. It's gonna help us kind of unlock what we're, what we're looking at. So if you want to turn to chapter 18, you can. Uh, there's the parable, let me just summarize it in this way. Jesus tells a parable of these two men who go to the temple. One is a Pharisee, so a religious leader, and the other is a tax collector. And both of these men go to, the, go to the temple to pray. The posture of the Pharisee is says that he was looking to his own righteous, he was looking to his own self for his righteousness. And then he starts recounting all of his religious activities that he does, that he ties and he does these certain things. And then he does something that's interesting. He compares himself to the sinners around him that he is better than them. So let's just pause there. So Jesus is gonna contrast the Pharisee and the tax collector in this parable. Okay, now the tax collector, the contrast of the tax collector. The tax collector comes into the temple, but it says that he considered himself so unworthy that he didn't even raise his eyes to heaven. And so as he prayed, he began beating his chest and saying, God, would you be merciful on me, a sinner? And then Jesus drops this truth bomb in his audience. He says, it wasn't the Pharisee that went away justified. Who was it? It was the tax collector. Think about 
the Pharisees and the religious leaders who have devoted their whole lives to be justified with God. And Jesus just says, it's actually the tax collector who's going home justified. I just wanna dive in just a little bit to the, the Pharisees. They were looking to their outward activities as a way of saving themselves. It was a self-saving measure. And it's so easy for us to get into the same cycle that they did. I lived in this cycle for many, many years. I grew up in this small town with two big religious institutions and one blinking yellow light. And in that town, it was very easy for uh, you to think that your performance is how you earned acceptance with God. Like the things you did is how you actually earned acceptance of God, how, how you served or you read your Bible enough or you prayed enough or you served enough, those type of things. And I, and I was in that trap. That's how, that's how I thought you earned acceptance with God. But equally as important, and what the, what the Pharisees are doing here is that your righteousness would actually come from what you avoid. The people you avoid and the things you avoid would actually become your righteousness. And it's really easy to live that way. But the thing is, is that's looking at yourself for justification. It's looking at yourself to make yourself acceptable to God, which is impossible. And the thing about the compare and contrast to others, which is really easy to do, is if you're comparing and contrasting yourself to others and comparing, you're always gonna find someone who by your standards is doing a better job on the outside than you are, right? So what do you feel when you see somebody who's kind of killing it in an area that you're not? What do you feel? Shame, like I'm not doing enough. I need to catch up to that guy and you start doing more and more of this. Now, what do you feel if you're doing in the comparison trap? What do you feel when you find somebody who you're doing better? Pride. So the comparison and contrasting yourself with one another to make yourself uh, feel uh, accepted by God and accepted to yourself is always gonna breed pride and insecurity it will never actually just pan out the way you think. It's always gonna be doing that. And so we need, to take, we need to take stock of what Jesus is saying here in this parable because he's laying the foundation for this, that the tax collector's humility in the story, his desperation, he, the tax collector in the parable that Jesus was talking about, he knows he needs rescue. Like he knows he can't actually save himself. And that's the posture he comes with. And that's the same posture that we see in chapter 19 with Zacchaeus, is it not? A desperation, a posture that I cannot save myself. There is something that this Jesus offers that I need. Let's look at the last couple of verses in verse eight and nine. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now let's look at the small detail in verse eight. Did you see that small detail? What did Zacchaeus do in the beginning of verse eight? He stood. Where was he standing from? the table. So in this culture, they would actually eat not at chairs, but reclined on the floor and the table would be before him. So what is Zacchaeus doing? He's standing up from a meal and he stands up and then declares this message. 
Now, this is really, this is really important for us, especially in the table series. Think about, think about this. Jesus offers salvation on the spot. Now, let's just make a note of, if anyone asks you, hey, where, where does Jesus just come out and say that he's God, that he's equal with God? This is a great place to just point them to. This, this happens several places in the gospel, but Jesus forgives his sin and offers salvation. Who alone can save and offer this type of thing that Jesus is offering? God. Jesus is putting himself on the same plane as God. So here's the thing. In those days, in order to get forgiveness and salvation, where did you have to go? The temple. You had to go and offer your sacrifice to receive forgiveness of sins. Now notice this. Jesus offers Zacchaeus forgiveness of sin and salvation, not at the temple, but where? The table. Jesus offers forgiveness of sin and salvation, not at the temple, but at the table. Let's unpack that just a little bit. Jesus is saying now, from now on, anyone who calls upon my name, it's in, not in a place, it's in the person of Jesus. It's in the work that is life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord at any time, in any place, forgiveness of sin is offered. God is seeking the lost, inviting them home. Jesus' invitation to Zacchaeus unlocks the good news of Jesus wherever we are. We have seen so clearly in our, uh, our Generous Table series that the whole Bible points to God as the generous host. But notice in this story, who was the host? Who, who is the host? Who, whose house are we in? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is the host. Now just hold that for a second. Think about this. Zacchaeus is hosting Jesus. So just like the kingdom of Jesus does, it flips things upside down. You have the greedy tax collector hosting the son of God. Let's unpack that. The greedy tax collector now becomes the generous host. Zacchaeus, once a greedy man, starts giving money away and starts repaying people and his heart has been changed. The table of Zacchaeus moves from a greedy table to one of blessing and generosity. His heart is so changed in that moment that the gospel so much sets him free that he now becomes not greedy with his money, but generous and opens up his pockets to bless others. Jesus flips Zacchaeus' table upside down. The greedy table has now become the generous table. See, your table is a place where you can welcome in strangers, they can become friends, and by God's grace, they can become part of the family. That's what it meant when it said a son of Abraham. Every meal is more than a meal. We share more than food at our tables. We can offer the same hospitality that Jesus has shown us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and invited us in. The invitation was a generous one to become sons and daughters of God. And now we belong to him and he dwells in us. So think of this, think of the implications 
of the gospel, the good news of Jesus and what it did in Zacchaeus's table, what it did in his heart and what it can do in ours. Because God's table is a generous table, because we have received the generous gift of God giving his son for us, because he has offered himself as the meal that truly satisfies and offered us inheritance as becoming his children, because he has given us generally, generously to the spirit to change our hearts, to dwell in us and empower us for godly living, because of all of these things, because of God's great generosity inviting us into the table, therefore, we can open up our whole lives with our whole hearts. Therefore, our tables can become generous tables. Your table can become the generous table of God. I was thinking this week of a familiar passage in the, the New, New Testament where the early church is coming together and Acts 2.42, many of you know this verse where it says that they met regularly in homes and broke bread with one another. And I was thinking about the implications of the early church and the table. And they're breaking bread together. And here, once enemies, once different tribes and different nations and all these things, now they're sitting together at a table and they're looking across the table to the eyes of somebody who used to be an enemy. Where once there was great division, now there is unity. Now they are brothers and sisters. And then I was thinking about Saul, how Saul, when he started, when we first are introduced to Saul, what is he doing? He's persecuting and killing who? Christians. And so Paul is killing these Christians. He encounters Jesus. He is invited in by God's grace to become a son of God. And he gives his life and he's so changed by Jesus that his life can turn, completely turns upside down. But think about Paul sitting at a table, looking across the table to people's eyes who he'd be looking at and seeing, I actually killed their family member. And now they're sharing a table. See, I think in our nation with all the divide and all the things going on, uh, we're told we're supposed to have a lot of enemies in this world. And I don't believe that social media is the answer to bridging those gaps. I believe it's our tables to be inviting people in. Recently, we read a book that showed the transforming power of the table. It's by Rosaria Butterfield. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And she talks about just the everyday hospitality, how it changed her life, but also how she starts to practice it now. And I think for us as a church, there is just something to learn about her story and how radical uh, generosity becomes everyday uh, discipline of hospitality. So I, wanna, I want you guys to watch her story and then we'll pick up with application. We live at this time where so many Christian ideas are understood as hate speech. After the Obergefell decision legalized gay marriage, that put the gospel on a collision course 
with the new law of the land. And I think many Christians have been struggling with, well, how do I speak? What do I do? How do I move forward? Home is a vital place to invite your neighbors in to have some heartfelt conversations. We can love our children together. We can let some things slide, even though the world we live in would say that we're supposed to be enemies. To me, hospitality is the ground zero of the Christian faith. I was raised in an Italian family. There were some issues in my house that made it almost impossible to have people in. So hospitality didn't really become endemic to my life until I had set up a home of my own. I was a professor at Syracuse. I lived as an out lesbian feminist in New York. In our LGBTQ community, somebody's home was open every night of the week. And there was never a question, where will I go if I need help? Because the community itself is organic and fluid, and that was how we dealt with crises. After I wrote my tenure book, I really wanted to write a book that was on my heart. Why is the religious right such a hateful community? And why do they hate people like me? I was on a war against two things, patriarchy and stupid. So I was really curious to know why relatively decent people would use the Bible in such a hateful way. So I wrote an editorial and it brought all kinds of attention my way, which I didn't really expect. But one of the things it brought my way was a letter from Ken Smith, the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. When Ken and his wife Floyd invited me to dinner, I was happy. I, th I thought of Ken as my unpaid research assistant. And they were fine with the fact that I, I wanted to read the Bible to critique it. That began a research journey that changed my life. But it wasn't research that changed my life. In Ken and Floyd's home, the way that they practiced hospitality became a living, breathing example of the theology that they were teaching. After my first dinner at Ken and Floyd's house, Ken gave me a big hug. Floyd gave me a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. We said, we'll catch up next week. This was fun. Can't wait to do it again. They did not share the gospel with me, and they did not invite me to church. And that was so wonderful, because what it showed to me was that they didn't see me as a project. They actually saw me as a neighbor. Now, I didn't step foot in the church for two years, but every week I was in their home. And every week, it was clear that pretty much anything could go. We could ask anything. Ken and Floyd were fine. And that process of dialogue and table fellowship was compelling. It was deeply compelling. I did not come to faith because I stopped feeling like a lesbian. It's not that I got all of my worldview issues just completely cemented with a happy Christian evangelism, not at all. I came to faith because I became convicted that Jesus is who he says he is.
Ephesians 4.29 is our watchword, that we are to impart grace to the hearer. I might not agree with everything that you hold to be near and dear, but because we are neighbors, I don't have to say everything that's on my heart. And you don't have to say everything that's on your heart right now. We can put some of our worldview issues aside. And over years of this, the gospel takes on a momentum that is compelling to people. I think we need to give each other the reminder that it's God who saves. It's not about certainly us being perfect or our words being perfect, but show up we must in the lives of unbelievers. What comes naturally to me and what comes naturally to you is to hang out with people who are like us, <laughs> people who can maybe finish our sentences, people who don't scare us. But hospitality, biblically speaking, takes strangers and makes them neighbors, and takes neighbors and makes them family of God. It's a great joy to see the gospel bring people together who are supposed to be enemies. And it's a great joy to know that God never gets the address wrong. And if your neighbors aren't people you know yet, there's a blessing waiting for you. She noticed in her story how she was radically changed by intentional and regular hospitality. She was welcomed in the home of Ken and Floyd, was able to ask questions. I love how she engaged, how we can engage the hostile and divided landscape with the tangible expression of table fellowship. How it puts the gospel at ground level our research didn't change her life, but hospitality introduced her to Jesus. She didn't feel like a project, but felt like a neighbor. See, many of us are familiar with the great commandment to uh, love God with all that we are and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we rightly apply the story of the Good Samaritan that everyone is our neighbor. We rightly apply that. But I think it's come at the cost of our actual neighbors. See, it's a lot easier to be like, I'm gonna be nice to the person at the grocery store, but not even know my neighbor's name. And so I think there's a, a challenge before us in this that hospitality can become a discipline that opens up the power of the table in our table, that our table can become the generous table. Our table is not just for our nourishment, but for the world. That we would join Jesus on his mission in Luke 19.10, where it said, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. That we would be about the mission of Jesus. We have an opportunity to join Jesus on this mission. And at Fellowship, we wanna make this really, really tangible for you this morning. Our application to make this where we're gonna venture into opening up our table. So I'm gonna have the ushers go back and we're gonna hand you guys uh, a kit this morning. And so this is one per household. Repeat after me, one per household, okay? So we don't have enough for everyone in the room, but one per household. So whether you're an individual or a family, we wanna hand you this kit. And in this kit 
is going to guide you through how do you invite someone to your table? How do you invite someone to have a shared meal with you? We don't want to take for granted that hospitality is just something that we all know, just like in the video. But you, maybe you didn't grow up, or maybe you regularly open people uh, up into your home. And so we're going to hand you this kit. And so I'm going to walk through this kit of what's in this kit. And as I, as I do, I'm gonna, uh, we're going to have it on the screen. And as you get the kit, you can start opening it up and seeing what's in here. Okay, there's no meal in here, so just don't get too excited. So in this, in this host kit, you're going to open it up. And the first thing you're going to come to and see is our discipleship pathway. This is how we grow uh, as wholehearted followers of Jesus. That we have our weekly rhythms of your church and your group. And then we have daily rhythms of your walk and your world. And so when we define the world, we're talking about where you live, where you work, and where you play into the ends of the earth. And at Fellowship, I think we've done a great job of going to the ends of the earth, but not so much where we live, work, and play. And so we wanna take this first tangible step for you guys of how do we invite people in to our homes. And so you're gonna see just as you open up this explaining the kit, just the power of the table, how to invite someone in, how to set the environment. But then on the back is this uh, frequently asked questions. I'm just gonna read one for us this morning. I have neighbors that have lived near me for several years and I'm embarrassed to say that I still do not know their names. How do I invite them over after all these years? Okay, if I just took a show of hands, how many of that would be true of us in the room? 95% of you would have your hands. of people that have lived near you for years that you just don't know. And that's part of our culture. People come in and they put down the, the garage door. So we just, we just ask that you just own it. You just go up to their house and say, hey, listen, I know that I should have walked in up to your house 10 years ago, but I just wanna own that. I wanna get to know you. So we have things like that of just being able to walk through um, and how to make things uh, take away the barriers for you to open your house. The next one is a conversation starter. We wanna just uh, create a way for you to be able to put this at the center of your table and just have eight great questions to just kind of break the ice get to know one another better. This is just so we don't have to put any work or thought into how to host this, this meal. The next one is just a fun connection point gift, uh, a game, sorry. The, this is that the world is a small place, that we're all connected to people through these different connections. And so it's just a fun way of discovering how are you connected with them and then finding some things that you have unique in common uh, with them. Now this, this next one is a tool, it's called the neighborhood map. This is a tool for you all to be able to use. We gave you some fellowship swag and the magnet. Okay, that magnet is so it goes on your refrigerator. And so you can put this map up and start filling in the information of who are your neighbors. And so as you fill in your information, whether you live in an apartment complex or a neighborhood or you live out in the country, you can actually fill this out. And to be able to begin praying for those uh, who live near you, or maybe you want to just even use it for your work, you can do that as well. But to regularly be thinking about how do we invite others in. And then the last thing we gave, we just gave you a simple recipe. If you want to make something, there's just something you don't have to put much thought into. Uh, we give you that. And then a prayer for how to pray and prepare for the meal of inviting someone over. And the last thing I'll say is we, we do not want uh, this to be, we want to take away all the obstacles for you to invite someone into your home, into your table. And so we hope that this kit will just help launch you into that. And so if, you, if you're like, oh man, Eric, you just don't understand. I don't have time. I'm not a great cook. Let me just show you. Here's an actual meal kit. It's actually a pizza box and it's a meal kit. It just comes with a meal already in there and you can just order that and they'll actually deliver it to your door uh, for a small fee. Here's the thing. 
we want, our, our call to action for you this week is we want you to invite someone to your table this week. Just plain and simple. We want you to invite someone to your table. Maybe you're like, Eric, I don't have a table, I'm out. Okay, well, you know what? Restaurants have tables. Invite them to a shared meal. We want you guys to tangibly engage. How do we take all that we've learned about the generous table throughout the story of the Bible and how do we apply it tangibly in our lives? This is one way that we want you to engage your world where you live, work, and play. And so we uh, wanna invite you to be able to do that this morning. So I know, I know they're still passing things out. And so as we sing this last song, as we sing these songs, would you take in a deep breath of all that God has taught us throughout this series and then ask the Spirit to begin leading you to who do you want me to engage with this week? To be able to have those conversations, to begin preparing. It doesn't have, the meal doesn't have to happen this week. You just have to invite this week. You can set it up for three weeks from now. We just want you to have the call to action to be able to invite those uh, to the table. Would you stand with me as we sing and we close out our service today? So as way of benediction this morning, we've been reading uh, in the General's Table series together, just a response to all God has revealed to us. So on the screen, would you say this with me? We are in Christ with one another for the world. One more time. We are in Christ with one another for the world. If something's stirred in you or you want to know more about who Jesus is or you have a prayer that we can, we can come alongside you and we always have people up front that we'd love to pray with you, thank you and we're praying for you as you invite people to your table, which is God's generous table. Amen, amen. See you next week.